Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Jacob Field, who is the founder of Ripehouse, the software artificial intelligence platform for selecting property around Australia. He's got a marketing and web development background, has been a property investor for 15 years, and we chat to Jacob about why he started the platform, how it works, artificial intelligence, machine learning, drilling down to the streets, the suburbs, and how his clients or subscribers are getting up to 25% growth in the first year of ownership of these properties. It's a fascinating interview and an insight into the future and how tech is influencing property buying decisions. Here's Jacob. Jacob Field, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have a chat and try and help some investors with some research and, and information. Awesome. It's probably been a year in planning you coming on board and just recently <laughs> uh, Julie sort of dropped a program that she's been working to help her source investment property. So it's a it's a perfect little introduction to, to get yourself involved. But can you just kick us off with who you are and, and what you specialize in? Yeah, I guess outside of having a beautiful wife and a couple of younger kids, and been in my mid-30s, I'm a property investor, would be how I've sort of generated my wealth typically. And now I'd sort of describe myself as a researcher, a property researcher and educator. Excellent. And we're going to delve into the nitty-gritty in that. We're looking forward to that for sure. But let's get a, a bit of a background into to the real Jacob that was is hidden as an <laughs> adolescent. What posters were on the, the bedroom wall as a youngster? Oh, this is going back a while, I suppose. I've been a car guy mostly, so, and I think you're a bit of a car guy too, Mike. So, Ferrari F40s. Nice. Uh, They're expensive. Posters these days. of those. Oh, what a car! Yeah. Beautiful. And BMWs. I've always had a soft spot spot for BMWs. So, older BMWs would have been my first car and posters definitely <laughs> that's good you're talking my language let's talk about the the property side of things so so you you mentioned you're you're a property investor and obviously we're going to hear a bit more uh, about your journey there but how did you get started what was your first investment jacob first investment wasn't property <laughs> it was t2 so i think it was t2 t2 telstra shares back in ah well it must have been around 2000 that was first investment, so I was a good saver and sort of quite ambitious, and I bought those as I sort of hit the bell on turning 18. Soon after, sort of then did go into property, took the, the Telstra shares out and, and went into property and purchased down here in Hobart for 145000 was the first investment. Wow. Did a reno on that property and rented it out pretty much straight away for $240 a week. Still own it today. It's, it's a really good sort of spot. It's about five minutes from the CBD, which is not... As all of you mainlanders might think on the outer ring, it's still <laughs> it's still sort of quite inner Hobart. So it's a good location and a really nice investment. And Hobart's been uh, roaring along lately, so it's it's going to be even better now. It has. Yeah, it has. <laughs> so, Jacob, you're, you're a self-described DIY investor, and obviously that's, that's part of what you do as your business now as well. Why did you decide to go your own way? Yeah, well... Before I sort of describe, I guess, what I mean by that or what you know, I'll refer to as a DIY investor, it might be worth just going into a little bit of the background, the early days as an investor, if you would indulge Of course, quickly. of course. <laughs> yeah, after that first purchase, I did buy a second one quite soon after. We had, as you sort of mentioned, Hobart is going through a, a nice growth uplift at the moment, but it's long periods of flatlining down here generally. 
But I was lucky enough, I suppose, after those first two investments to have a really strong uplift. 2004, 2005, we had 45% growth. Those did really well for me. I then moved with, with my wife up to Sydney, you know, chasing jobs, et cetera, moving to the big smoke. So I wanted to keep investing, looked in Sydney area, Mount Druitt, really couldn't understand that I was actually pretty spooked in the end with some of the properties and what we sort of saw there in terms of, I hadn't, I didn't really understand how people lived in Sydney. I didn't understand how to assess value and definitely lost my confidence. I, you know, I, I guess develop an analysis paralysis is, is the term. Yeah, yeah. I did things myself then. I looked internally when I sort of developed that analysis paralysis then. I guess I tried to do things my own way. So, you know, we didn't take any shortcuts. Anna and I, we went to cafes and, you know, a different suburb every week for two years, a period of sort of getting to know different suburbs, how to assess value, why people live there. Across New South Wales, I'm an analytical person, a technical person. I developed a framework to assess these things. That's how I developed the confidence to invest in Sydney. That's probably the beginning of the framework that you know we can talk about and, and help other investors to implement. That's where I sort of would describe myself as a DIY investor. Since then, we've obviously purchased in New South Wales, regional, inner Sydney, you know, multiple states, back here in Tassie again now, where we've moved back for young family, school. It's, it's, it's pretty a little bit quieter down here in Hobart. Yeah. So, yeah, does that sort of explain... I guess as a, a DIY investor, how I sort of look internally and work from within. De- definitely, and describing yourself as analytical as 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 now seems completely fair. So, so you, were, I guess, you were setting the the foundations or, or learning about the, the 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 bits and pieces that drive property value, why people live in suburbs, what the amenities are like, and and that sort of stuff. And and you founded Ripe House, which is the platform that we're going to talk about today based on those analytics and and we're going to sort of delve into exactly how it works but i just wanted to sort of i guess get an idea about what the motivation was for for that yourself what what, what, there there are a lot of i guess spruikers and sharks in the property investment industry was that part of the reason why you wanted to build that platform that really just looks at the analytics and the data and it removes that sort of spin and the emotional stuff yeah, I guess there are a lot of sharks and, and spruikers. Property has been, you know, a key component of property investment for me. You know, I guess starting investing down here in Hobart, we are literally on an island, you know. Um, property investment's not necessarily talked about in Hobart, you know, with friends and family, etc. So developing a network was really important for me earlier on. I did that actually through Summersoft as a property forum, what actually sort of the light bulb that switched me across from, say, the Telstra share into property was reading More Wealth by Residential in, sorry, More Wealth from Residential Property by Jan Summers, yep. jumping on the Summersoft Forum, which no longer exists, connecting with investors across the country, really understanding and, and reading, and, you know, it's a shame that doesn't exist anymore, but becoming part of that community and comparing notes, that was something that was really important. It is, I guess, probably just a, a caveat there, when investors are inexperienced, it can sometimes be a dangerous thing um, in in that type of community. So inexperienced investors comparing notes can compound analysis paralysis. So that community does need to be guided and assisted, but that was really the, the founding. And I guess that sort of really brought out to me the, 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 the importance of having a good network and a good community around you so that the spruikers and the sharks and that component of the industry I was able to sort of compare and contrast. And I guess moving into the Ripe House world where we are a community 
Ripehouse provides you know, research and analysis tools, etc. People are coming into Ripehouse on their property journey. You know, I'm in a unique and impartial position of sharing along those journeys within Ripehouse, whether they're the good or the bad parts of that journey. And generally, when they're coming into the Ripehouse fold, they have experienced a bad part of that journey. You know, they might have been burnt or, or ripped off. So I like to really understand and ask questions. So when I've sort of seen a, a bad part of this, this property investment space and I like to really dig into it and, and research and understand, I guess, the business model or how they're operating and how they're getting away and doing these things. And in some cases, you know, it's just jaw-dropping, jaw you know, what you sort of see. But, uh, yeah, probably just clarify, Mike, I'm, I'm not in the business of causing bad blood. I like to look at the positive. <laughs> yep. You know, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not an investigatory body, I guess. What I'm concerned about is acting in, within the interest of the investor, looking at the positive, you know, an abundance mentality. So I like to only work with other professionals whom have demonstrated, I guess, they're above board many times, you know, not just once but consistently above and beyond. So it's more I look at the bad to know what is the good and identify that. Yep. It's, it's probably just to clarify. And I, and I know that it's not necessarily a, a ripehouse solution or working with a buyer's agent. There's there's a number of buyer's agents that, that work with your software. But can we sort of go back to the beginning? We, we know that you're a tech, a tech wizard, but, but what is ripehouse and how does the platform actually work? Yeah, well... <laughs> this is a tough one. I, I'm, there, right? I'm at the risk of... Yeah, I, I just sort of at the risk of getting really nerdy here. So <laughs> I, I'll try and make this, and we could probably do a whole podcast series on, on this technicalities of the future and right house research, which unless you want to do, I'll, I'll try and give a, a very short... Let's, let's, um, let's start with a short one just in case the people haven't had answer. A, a cup of coffee or, or they haven't got a glass of red with them. And yeah, we might jump yeah. into some of the specific parameters Absolutely. that it looks at. But yeah, from an umbrella point of view to start with. Umbrella, I guess that we provide commentary and community. We provide research reports and analysis tools. If you were to come into the site, into Ripe House, you can jump straight into a free trial, a seven-day trial, and, and you know that's on the homepage. But you can jump straight into the analysis tools from day one, and that's really important. I, I guess maybe you know before, just a really quick, the umbrella, what we do, it's, we have to sort of say, uh, the way to answer that question, we'd look at what we do differently, maybe. You know, we... We have to ensure that the research and recommendations within the platform are the highest performing in the country. That's our mission. That's our goal yep. is to yep. provide that highest performing research and recommendations. In doing that, we, you know, we do a couple of things differently. We own all of our own data, huge amounts, and this is critical for us to, I guess, recalculate the important market signals on a daily basis. So that's getting into the middle nerdy world, I suppose. But, you know, knowing things on a daily basis is very important. You can see that at any touch point within Lighthouse when the calculation for that reliant data was, was done. So, and that's probably a point, Mike, this is probably the key takeaway or, or one of them that I'd like to make in this podcast is, you know, people come to us and say, where should I invest you know, that's their point of view. Where is the next place? Where should I invest? Help us with that. In making that assessment, you need to be relying on timely research. To the day, if you're relying on out-of-date research, if it's third-party, if it's a quarterly report, it's already out-of-date by its very nature. You know, if, if you're, you know, looking at or working with someone who's 
looking at ABS data, which is gathered in the past, or a media, media article that's you know quite generalised, then you know you're going to be investing like the masses. What Right House does is helps us, I guess, probably join the one percent. I sort of call it. You need to be avoiding becoming like the, the larger group of less sophisticated investors. You need to step above into that one percent and. You know, I think we've talked about it in, in personal conversations recently, Mike, in terms of we've got a tough lending environment at the moment yeah. with APRA. Very difficult. We need to step above, you know, rely on timely and, and sort of cutting-edge research, I suppose, to, you know, select high-performance assets that will help us navigate this environment. Getting the loan approved is obviously a pretty big deal for a lot of people at the moment. And then generating strong growth from day one. That's that's really the core of what House is about. Just really quickly, what it is, it's Australia-wide. It has to be. We have to be able to find that highest growth market. If we're just looking in your local area, it's not a high chance that it's going to be the, the one and the same thing. The tools are also our research. I speak generally about our research. It needs to be holistic. The White House is holistic. You know, It's not enough to just to find a city or a local government area that's really going to go ahead. We need to find that top suburb, that the, the, the tip of that mountain of, of potential, I suppose, in that area and find that suburb, the individual streets within it, um, the local, you know, we're local experts in our, in our suburb where we live. We would tell family where to seek out and to live and, and to buy. We would tell them where to avoid. We need to make sure that we're acting with holistic research right down to the street and property level for every suburb in the country. So it's a major focus with the White House sweet spot within the platform. And when we're... F- I guess probably that's just a little... I did try and stay high level, but yeah, that's yeah. maybe a snapshot of, of what we, we try and do here. Look, the the Ripe House platform, when we're, t- we're drilling down in data and we're talking about metrics, it's it's the power, I think, for, for, for me and what I see is that it's removing the, the subjectivity. Now, there's there's a there's a Ripe House brain behind the scenes that, that, that looks at, uh, I think the last quoted figure I saw was 121 <laughs> metrics, and we talk about this these mountains of data. What is this brain absorbing? And can you give us an idea of some of the, the metrics? Obviously, I'm presuming there's things like you know days on market and, and discounting and that sort of stuff but are there maybe some other obscure ones that you can share that have a have a have a big influence on on property and and picking a property Definitely. that's going to have good growth in the in the short and long term yeah I, I think you touched on it removing subjectivity is the key you know <laughs> probably the way to, to best and most reliably do that is to avoid humans <laughs> to, yeah. to be perfectly blunt um, humans get it wrong a lot of the time, but you know, in seriousness, I suppose, in simple terms, we look at the effect and not the cause. Okay, so the way to remove subjectivity is by looking at the effect and those types of signals. So we look at property signals. So I guess what I would call primary signals, which is, as you mentioned, days on market or, or sales volume. So, and not necessarily the secondary or the causal signals. So things like population growth and employment infrastructure would be the cause. We're not concerned about those. We're, co- we're, we're concerned about the primary effect signals, okay? Maybe at risk of being really nerdy again, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> so stop me if, if I am. But, you know, typically investors, the masses, we, we don't want to invest like those guys. We want to, and even if an advisor or someone you're working with is, is, has this mentality, we, we want to challenge this. We want to step above it, all right? So typically we see investors chasing, you know, the large infrastructure projects, they want to invest in an area where the government's, say, for example, putting in a train line, right? Yep. So this is, I guess, great. You know, it's all well and good to do that. 
and they'll probably do reasonably okay by buying now over the longer term. But I guess deciding where and when to buy when you come across that type of signal, that research or that infrastructure project, deciding when and where exactly to buy, that's when the subjectivity comes in, okay? Maybe think about this example just to illustrate. And, you know, with this train line extension, and I'll, I'll ask you, Mike, when would you expect the growth to occur when that train line is announced or, or there is something happening here? Yeah. So that's the question. Yeah, look, I, I would think that there, there might be some uptick during the construction phase, depending on how much is there. But it, I guess it's probably post post the event as people sort of move to that suburb because now there's new accessibility to the city? Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe the point might be that you're not necessarily sure and it's difficult to know based on that information. Yeah. You know, and a train line extension in Brisbane when, you know, we've got a stable government and they're, you know, really progressive and actually following through and comparing that to, say, New South Wales where it's been quite a, a while of, of announcement after announcement, nothing really happening, it might be different. So it's a case-by-case basis. No one really knows, I, I guess, might be the answer. Yeah, well, it's difficult to yeah. even know when construction's to, to begin. I mean, take yep. Barangaroo Airport, for an example. If you were saying, oh, yeah. my whole investment strategy is based around that airport, when do you when do you get in? But, yeah, I guess this is probably sort of something... The, the stages, it's when it's announced and it's notoriously like to, de- to be delayed, when they start reclaiming the land and it's actually happening. Construction, as you mentioned, when it's finished, or it might even be like, it might be two years later when people are actually using that train line, they're talking in the office. You know, it's, you know, it's a great commute now. Wanting to think about moving here, that might be the strongest driver. If you're looking at the cause, like, I guess this is a point, if you're looking at the cause side of the equation, the train line, then that's when the subjectivity comes in. You know, that's when the, the masses and the typical investors sort of come into a little bit of trouble. You know, if we're looking, I guess, at the effect signals, the primary signals, and looking for the alignment there, which is what we try and do at White House, when you find that alignment, the stars are aligning, I guess we call it, yep. that's how you remove that subjectivity by focusing on, on that alignment. Yep. Yeah, I think that sounds simple enough. So we, we, we know we know the things that will cause or we can look back and go, well that's the reason why it sort of moved. But there are some there are some other triggers that are that are associated with that, I guess is, is what you're saying. And if we can zero in on those, we can maybe pick yeah. the markets at the right time or maybe even uncover a market that doesn't have a lot of publicity around infrastructure improvements or or, or media press and be there on the ground floor is that fair to say yeah and that's that's when you sort of touched on 121 metrics i guess in terms of we monitor those metrics those signals the effect signals you know they are the things like sales volumes increasing or days on market vacancy rates we even look at things like public housing concentrations in the streets and how that might impact growth and value we look at crime we look at some of the, the things that we've uncovered i guess like in terms of Proximity to shops, schools, and transport is really strong key drivers yep. to growth and value, and not necessarily, you know, things like cafes and um, parks and hospitals and things like that. I guess it's finding those signals and how they're changing over time, looking at that change as what drives growth. That's what we focus on. That is the, I guess, the the secret sauce and how to remove that subjectivity. If we can focus on the signals then we can more reliably find that very high growth. It might be, I mean, a really quick example, I'd probably like bringing it back to, It's we're just talking about people here, mm-hmm. you know, that train line extension, just to illustrate how 
we sort of do things and how the right house brain, we call it, does things. It's looking for changes in those signals, but they need to be aligned to, it's actually what people do. You know, it's like the train line extension occurs, as an example, it's causing lots of many, you know, more people to move to the area, potentially. They typically rent first. You know, they might dip the toe into water in that market. They don't want to buy, but they want to go there for the new job or they want to go there because they can commute to the city quicker. They're moving, they're renting first. This is driving up rents. It's our first signal, right? So it's a dormant market typically, so we also see yields growing up as well. So we've got two signals. And when they work together, it's very powerful. It's very important to see this. So this is a really simple example. We've got two signals now, and they happen concurrently. Six months after the human story is these people are loving living there, the commute's great, the new job's great, we want to buy. So we start seeing a spike in sales volumes. The one percenters, the sophisticated investors have already started potentially buying as of now. So they're also spiking up sales volumes as well. But we're starting to see larger buying groups, you know, as a, as a people doing similar things, I suppose, in the area at the same time. So Say six months after and up to 12 months, we start seeing that spike in sales volumes. Remember, there's no growth yet. Previous growth is no <laughs> predictor of future growth. We, we are not assuming there's been a growth or not at this point. So sales volumes are spiking is our third signal. At this time, as in this sort of simple example, we might look towards days on market, yep. the time it takes to list and sell a property. If days on market is steady and decreasing, at the same time, we're, we can assume there's a tightening in the market, if that makes sense. So this is when you would say that growth is likely or strongly imminent. Sometimes you see cases where you've got developers coming in and putting off the plans through. You've got sales volume spiking. You've got great growth markets. But days on market are also going up. We've just got supply hitting the market. So that's a, a key signal to watch. Yeah, maybe that might illustrate what we sort of do a little bit more clearly, but we're focusing on the demand side, the primary signals, and the timing is critically important. So you can sort of think back to the timeliness of the researchers is very important. Yep. Um, and we update our core signals multiple times a day, and it's you know it, it has to be done that way. Now, this might sort of terrify a couple of people listening at, at home or or in their car. Heaven forbid it be a, a self-driving car. We're we're in the middle of this this. <laughs> ethical debate about who gets run over if someone has to be run over but the ripe house brain it learns now it's unlikely to be driving a vehicle so we can probably all relax but how does that actually work does it does it sort of look at predictions that it's made and then it might have made historically a year ago and said look i think i think that's going to be a a great market and then follow the prices and it didn't happen and then it sort of realizes that maybe there was a metric that it had too much of a waiting How, how on earth does that work jacob yeah, well, we've touched on signals. So really the right house brain works by looking at those signals and changes to try and find areas of growth. It really just comes down to us, I suppose. It comes down to people. It comes down to buyer behavior. How do we live and rent and buy and value property? So it's the start of that journey that I, I began a long time ago in developing that framework. It's just an extension of it. Okay. I guess it's it's breaking down why the residents in a market will act and then it's training the brain to look for signals that would just make sense to to how they would act. It's, you know, it is common sense, but then computers don't really have much of that, you know, generally. So, yeah, we started off on the right house journey with, you know, a very simple framework, but then we've surveyed hundreds of investors over the years about what they look for with growth. 
how they target areas. We've talked to many other experts and professionals in the industry, you know, interviewed, surveyed, you know, just through professional relationships, we've quizzed them. I guess that was all to do with working out a baseline to train, you know, which signals do we look at as important and in which order and understanding we we know the why as a human, but the computer just knows the data, you know, it's it's, it's quite sort of dumb in that respect. So we had to train it and then we threw the, the, the brain the keys as such. So, you know, the brain would then put each concept to the test. It would back check it. It would, you know, in doing that back checking, try and work out the effectiveness of that strategy and, and those signals and, and tying them together. It, it would then try and improve it. And I think that's the key. It would, the cream would rise to the top in those strategies and we tested many hundreds and we refined them, but we developed a baseline, a, a blueprint for finding these high growth markets. Anytime, I suppose it's, it can be applied now into the future. It's learning and it's improving them and it's adapting to the to the current environment and it's Australia-wide and it needs to be, I guess, to, to find those high-growth markets. That's pretty impressive stuff. I, I'm guessing that human behaviour changes, so it would have to adapt, but we change relatively slowly, I would guess. So does this mean that the brain's actually getting better as time goes on? Yeah, I, I guess... The way that it works, I suppose, is, you know, we do, there's a buzzword, you know, it's artificial intelligence. That's the buzzword in simple terms, which I might sort of break down. It's, Please. It, it, it's not, I suppose, we try and avoid the buzzword, buzzwords. I can, I can sort of break down some of the things that we use to, 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 I guess, adapt. And it needs to move with the times and the investors and that human behavior. So we use something called swarm intelligence. It is probably pretty out there, but... There's a, you know, I came across some research a few years ago. It was a light bulb moment for me that we've now built into the platform and looking at those signals. It was a study that I read in the States, in America. A research team was able to correctly pick the first four runners in the Kentucky Derby. So it's America's biggest race. We've got lots of runners and they've picked number one, two, three and four in the race. It's an extremely difficult thing to do. There was a token bet that the research team made of $20, and to sort of illustrate the odds, they turned that $20 into $11,000. Right. Okay. I bet they wish that they put a couple team, of grand on it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was the point that I was trying to make. Yep. That research team now they're actually employed within the Racing Association in America. It's a Google. You can you can look it up. It's a, it's a very interesting read. They're now consulting to the horse racing industry. They use something called swarm intelligence, and it works by listening to the people, say, making the bets or investing in property in this example. So although the individual reasons why, there might be subjectivity at an individual level, swarm intelligence and how we implement it tracks the masses, the movements of the crowd. And the swarm intelligence from that crowd outperforms over 90% of the individuals in that swarm, okay, when you do it right and, and how we implement it. So we do. We listen to two groups within Lighthouse. We listen to a less sophisticated swarm, which we track by online search activity for you know areas, and we also track that by media storylines and sentiment. Okay, we classify them as a less sophisticated swarm, and we also track the sophisticated, the one percenters, the Lighthouse user group. Okay, we track which suburbs they are buying in, they're searching for, and they're engaging with within the platform, and. I guess we track the less sophisticated swarm to help the one percenters know that a market may be about to become too heated. You know, it's one thing to find a growth market, but as soon as lots of people find out about it, it becomes too heated, it's difficult to buy and negotiate. And it also helps the one percenters know when strong growth is imminent. And it's usually, you know, just before that heat. We don't want to buy 
six months down, you know, before all this happens and hold an asset without growth for six months. We want to buy just before that less sophisticated swarm are coming in. So the one percent of swarm help the main brain, as you will find those new growth areas, and it also knows when to get to stop buying in them. I guess artificial intelligence is the other buzzword that I did mention. In, you know, our implementation is for, you know, a technical term, it's implementing machine learning. This, in, 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 it really, you know, practical terms, the brain, I guess, is smart enough to tweak the strategies on the fly. And that's, you know, as we've talked about, that, that's all it's doing is changing the combination of timing of how it looks for signals to find that better performance and growth. It's back-checking that, so it's sort of learning and improving. And, it, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just looking for the relationships and how that change and, and, and getting more improvement over time. So that's why it's intelligence, as you will, and not just a computer. It's improving and it's learning. Well, take your word for that. It's it's quickly soaring over my head, I have to admit. But I'm interested in, in you're talking about the horses versus versus houses. I know not exactly, but my question is, if let let's say we're we're analysing the the swarm that that might be the punters betting on a particular horse. If if suddenly the masses start betting on, let's say, horse number seven, that doesn't increase its likelihood of actually winning. But with houses, if 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 people are all going to say Hobart then that can actually artificially inflate the value of that market even though maybe the metrics aren't there so isn't that even more powerful with houses than than horses because that swarm does actually influence the price yeah absolutely in in terms of you're making a market is probably what you're touching on and there's there's definitely elements of that it's difficult to qualify and quantify I guess if, if you're biasing more towards making that market if if you know, right now, as a community, it's, it's the one percenters, I suppose. If this information was common knowledge, I suppose, then, you know, it's becoming the commoditization of that. So it's now just the less sophisticated audience. We've got to stay ahead of that and strive and continually improve. Otherwise, it's, you know, almost equally applied and you're making markets left, right and centre. It's then lost its ability to do that. Yep. You know, it's, we're talking about... Is it a rising tide? Are all markets going up? Or does one market go up at the detriment of another? And it, this it, it potentially is the, the secondary. One market goes up to almost the detriment of the other. We're talking about individual markets that we're trying to seek out. But if they're all going up, then you know it, it's, it's commoditized. It's not really happening. So I guess we are talking about making markets. But maybe the more important point without sort of getting into that, you know, that, that, that first concept that I, I just talked about there, the important factor is it helps you get into a market before others. And if you're leading that, you're able to negotiate more effectively on property. You're able to buy a property that may be a little bit stale. You know, there might be some vendor distress there. Yep. It's been sitting on the market for a while. You can negotiate very aggressively and potentially have a higher chance of buying under market. So you're pre-swarm. Um, so pre-swarm. Pre-swarm. So that's, that's why we're using it. We might have um, created a hashtag today, pre-swarm. <laughs> <laughs> you bought yeah. you bought in you bought in Hobart Hobart pre swarm. Yeah, I, I guess you know the growth is occurring now. It's been quite strong growth for two years. White House recommended Hobart in 2015 from memory. The really important point to make here: it doesn't recommend Hobart. It recommends at the time it was two suburbs. It was West Hobart and Newtown. It was about 20% of each of those suburbs. So we're talking about the sweet spots here as well. So we're talking about. Um, I don't know the exact number, but let's say 2,000 dwellings in the entire city that it recommended to begin with. And so that's where the swarm and the intelligence was pointing towards. 
and then that moves. And it's different for every market, and we, we can't be subjective in this analysis because we need to be guided by those demand side signals. But in Hobart, it did then move into, say, Newtown, which is Middle Ring, into Lena Valley, into Moona, then out into Gnorky, and then into Claremont. That was the case study here. Yep. And it was a very particular tract from mid Hobart through into the northern suburbs. It, it didn't necessarily go over into the into the, the other side of the river or down into Kingston into the south of the city. This was the strongest. This was the tip of the opportunity in Hobart. If you want to invest like the masses, you'll just go and buy, you know, throw a dart at the board in Hobart and you'll buy there, I suppose. Yeah. And you would get the general uplift within the, the last few years. But, you know, to get that top tier growth and to potentially have purchased here earlier and had that longer period of growth, you needed to be very particular. The other point to make is we're not always right. So Hobart, you know, we didn't know that it was going to come on this strongly. Okay, so if, you, if you're not as fussy about picking a suburb, Hobart may have never came on as strongly as it, it did and you might have had a substandard investment. So that's the important point in terms of investing in Hobart. If you get that suburban street perfect or very close to, if Hobart didn't come on as strongly, you've still made great results and you've moved on to the next, which might be South Australia or say somewhere like WA that might be emerging now. That, that's that's something that I, I've found most interesting about the, the platform because there's a lot of talk about a particular suburb's going to boom, that Townsville's going to yep. boom or or Geelong's going to boom and, and, and both of them maybe have been positive and or negative uh, influences or, or I guess examples over time. But if we talk about Geelong, for example, it, it, it might be that every street in Geelong has got some degree of uplift, but one of them might be 1% and another of them 20%, and Ripe House does, does actually look street to, to, to street. Is, is that right? I mean, is that right, and, and how does it do that? Yeah, well, Geelong is a, a really good example, okay, because that also recommended around the same time as Hobart, maybe just into 2016 as well, okay? So Geelong had, to begin with, it was an owner-occupied-driven growth cycle in medium to upper markets within Geelong, so it was Belmont's from memory, Correct me if I'm wrong with these suburb names, everybody, in terms of, please forgive me, it's, it, there's, there's many suburbs put a passing through my head at any, <laughs> any one time, so but it started off in Belmont. That was driven by migration from Melbourne for people potentially using a train line to commute to Melbourne, priced out of the Melbourne market and liking the lifestyle of Geelong. Okay, so they, were, they had money and they were hitting that price point. Then we had a cause, right? So Geelong Council didn't want to invest in public or social housing out of their own pockets. So the, the cause was a change to policy. So it was they were reducing the square meterage for approvals for new buildings. So that then that was the cause, and the the effect was in the lower socio markets. Carrio was the, the the leading growth suburb that we ended up recommending. Obviously, as I mentioned before, we don't look at the cause, but we do investigate that post seeing the effect, just to to have that human story to tick that box. Okay, so. We found Carayo using the platform. It really stood out. Then we just did a check and balance, you know, over time to go, what is the story to learn and improve? That was the story. Carayo had very dramatic uplift. We had, so we have a lot of professionals using the platform. You know, some of them don't actually advertise the facts. Some of them do. Uh, lots of professionals, and that's great. We, we really, you know, if someone's a professional, you know, mortgage broker or an accountant, whoever it might be, is using the platform to, I guess, provide a research backbone to their business. We encourage that. If they are helping improve the outcomes to their clients, that's 
that's what we're trying to do here as well. So we really encourage partners and people to work with the platform. But one of those in particular purchased quite a substantial number of properties, so in the tens for clients in a short period of time and reported back to us 30 to 40% growth in that cryo market for the types of properties in the streets they were targeting in a 12-month period. It was was a, a very strong case, but... That's probably the point that you're sort of making in terms of it needs to be that street, it needs to be that property type. It's not enough for us to just say, hey, go and invest in cryo, go and invest in Geelong. We need to know that we need to target two bedrooms or three bedroom houses in cryo with developable size blocks where developers are going to come in in six months' time and drive up prices for those blocks. You don't necessarily need to subdivide it, but that is the most in-demand property type and we need to match that market. The research is very good at doing that. Things like the, the sweet spot as well. So it's very good at telling you which streets those that demand is coming towards yep. and we need to get that right. We look at things like where social housing is and concentrations. Social housing does a lot of social good, obviously, but it has a very strong negative impact on growth and value. Anything above 15% public housing in a street, you're starting to see very dramatic negative effects. So we look at that. You can drill down to every street in the country within Ripe House. We also look at strong tenant demand. So if people are coming to a market for the first time, as I mentioned before, they're typically renting first. So we want to, that, that rent then transitions into owner occupiers. We want to target those streets where they are preferring in simple terms. So we look at some tenant based demand signals. We look at the property. Is that street a cluster? of the in-demand property type. If we are targeting three-bedroom houses for this suburb, we know that that's what people want, and we'll buy in a street that's full of units and there's only one house, then we know we've got a problem. We need to buy... We don't want to be, I guess, holding a white elephant. We want to match that market. And the really important point, I suppose, each of these layers, so Geelong into Carayo, into street, into property, LGA through to property, they need to amplify each each and of themselves yep. to get these to get that, those results. That, that's the important thing. Yeah, that's an interesting idea to amplify. You might sort of start with state because the economy is going good, and then a region, and then a suburb, and we get to a street. And if you're picking the best of all of those, that's where you're going to get your results. I'm guessing. Can you tell me about the users? Who are they typically, and and what stats do you have about them as adv- investors? Yeah, first thing, so. Jump on for a trial. The first thing you do is ask you a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. It's to get to know you and to, I guess, help you. And then it's also we learn from you as well. Okay, so it's really important to help everyone get the, the best results from the community and also, I guess, the, the research and analysis tools. But in the early days, it, it really, you know, it was quite rudimentary. It was very powerful, but, you know, it was only really professionals and experienced investors who understood the power of what we're doing and were very positive, and there weren't many of those. Now our focus is on making, I guess, the tools extremely intuitive and to help and not hinder people to avoid analysis paralysis. So with any of this research, we've got great power, but it needs to break through that analysis paralysis. We try and, and believe the tools are very simple to use, but they're also then supported by education and learning and also in a community and, and fostering that community and, and contact. So I guess the way that we do that is we have learning video resources in our learning center. We have a private Facebook community and we have live chat support, regular webcast, etc. Typical investor, to answer that part of your question, yeah, sorry, you have 2.4 properties yep. in their portfolio. They actively, and this is probably an important point, they're actively looking now. So three quarters of them are currently looking to invest now 
even in the current environment of difficult finance approval. So there are lots of really strong growth opportunities out there. A lot of typical, less sophisticated investors are having difficulty gaining finance. The White House investors, because maybe, you know, in the past, they've typically found investments that are higher performing earlier, so they've reduced their portfolio LVR quicker, their loan-to-value ratio, and the investments. Remember, we've bought them at the high point of that yield cycle, so we've got really strong yields on these properties. You know, we're in a growth area, high growth and high yield together, that's a key part of the, the, the signals to get into the market. So we're, 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 I guess, breaking through the serviceability barrier that's in place a lot of the time. So the really important point, three quarters of Ripe House users are currently actively finding and looking at property today, which I think would be drastically a, a lot more than a typical investor audience. I'm interested in, in those investors and, and given the level of detail you can drill down to, does it contribute to, to analysis paralysis or, or does it minimise it? And are there people that you can see come in with a preconceived notion, i.e. they're looking at a, a suburb, they've found a street, the metrics are sort of saying that units are the best investment but they're sort of saying... I only want to buy houses because that's my philosophy. What d- does that happen, and and w- how does that impact the results if if people are coming in with with their own ideas rather than than trusting this this brain? Yeah, I, I guess probably just breaking that into into a couple of little questions in terms of people definitely have preconceived ideas. People some advanced users so we still have all of the advanced elements within the site even though it's not immediately obvious to a new user the way that we sort of have bias towards so if that's you know that's how you like to operate that's there for you but if generally the 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 typical user would prefer just the you know the, the suburb just the property literally just the property and what to pay for it and also very importantly, how to appraise that property. We do, we do full property appraisals, et cetera. Which comparables to use to negotiate a lower price? What are some of the signals that you can use to negotiate with the agent for a lower price, et cetera? It gives all of that to you. Okay, so the bias now is more towards giving the answers and then providing the ability to educate to justify how we got to the answer. And not necessarily throwing the investor the keys to sort of fumble through and go, hey, I'm going to drag sales volumes up here and I'll set minimum yield here and I'll, I'll bring all these stars aligning manually together and then I'll see what get, gets spat out. You can do that if you'd like to or you can just get the answer and that's how we've sort of now progressed towards. Yeah, does that sort of maybe illustrate... Uh, we, 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 we try and be very adaptive, I suppose, and, and listen to how people are, uh, are learning and, and getting the results yep. and provide the, the platform to, to suit to that. I want to talk about those results. You were, you were talking about obviously someone that was investing in, in Geelong market, but I want to talk about one of your success stories as an investor by the name of Guy. There's a, a various a few things that are, that are written about him online, but can you tell us about Guy and about some of his Definitely. results and his background and, and, and what he was able to do with the platform? Yeah, Guy, is. if, if you'd like some more details, we've actually got four parts to a case study of Guy's story and how he actually buys and invests in property. So that's on the Ripehouse blog, just www.ripehouse.com.au forward slash blog. Uh, very simple, but I guess Guy's an amazing investor and, well, I've gotten to know him, so he's an amazing person as well. <laughs> he he reached out to me after becoming a, a Ripehouse user 
out of the blue, and he said to me, since I've started using, so I hadn't really spoken to the guy, you know, apart from helping him use the software, etc., I hadn't really spoken to him about the properties he was buying necessarily at a personal level, but he reached out to me and said that since he's been using the research platform, he's purchased 10 properties. The average growth for each and every one of these properties, so not just one, but each of them as an average was 25% capital growth in their first year of purchase. Wow. And this was wow. only after being a subscriber for 10 months. Okay, so he was, you know, that's why he reached out. He was pretty happy about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other point to make, I suppose, with Guy, were, these were not new or off-the-plan properties, and, and he didn't generate this type of growth by, you know, doing renos, etc. This is probably a, a real key, a strong takeaway, is that these are commoditized investment properties. We're not doing anything special here. They're run-of-the-mill investments. They're located in high-growth areas. They're spread out across the country. You know, the beauty of it is that they are, so there's diversification. And the average yield on Guy's property, so he's not sort of carrying a burden of serviceability, the average yield of these properties was 6.25% across those 10. Some were regional, some were not. Guy's very aggressive with building his portfolio, so the price point of the properties was around 300 from memory. It might be a little bit lower than the average price point. He was slightly biased towards regionals yep. at that price point. He is and he isn't the average investor. He, he invests in the average property, but he's very aggressive in his wealth building. Yep. So, and I guess Right House supercharged that. 25% growth is, is a figure that does keep coming up, by the way. So our March, sorry, our May 2017 recommendations in our report have averaged 18% growth since. Okay, this was if you were able to drill into the suburbs, the streets and the properties that were recommended. That's obviously there's a difference between 18 and 25 but the key point here is if you're able to get into these markets before the masters, if you're very aggressive in negotiation, because you can be, there might you might be able to target properties that have already been discounted. A very important signal that you can access for every property on the market within Lighthouse is how long it's been on the market, has it been discounted, and we give you a distress assessment. Is it likely or unlikely to be in distress? If we'll come into these markets and we're able to then leverage all this information that we know to negotiate, we can potentially get under market. So we typically see this 25% figure reported back to us or tracked as 18% organic growth and the ability to buy under market by about 7% in some cases. So that's a, a figure that keeps coming back in case studies and, and investor stories. Those are those are big numbers, Jacob. You you and and you do quote customer success as a main driver for for what you're doing. How how important is that to you to to be able to to have a platform that's generating those numbers and and keep, I guess, teaching and 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 managing a platform that produces those numbers. We I, I probably need to just clarify as well. So there's no major asterisks here in terms of that legitimately occurs. Mm-hmm. But the the caveat to that is. That is first-year growth. Right. Okay, so it's front-end of growth. It's very good. This is the default setting. We obviously have different settings that you can use to find, you know, scarcity-driven or longer-term growth assets. That front-end that front of growth is occurring in the first year, and then it potentially might tail off over, you know, past that fifth year or past that third year. So very strong front-end of growth, which suits an asset accumulation strategy. Yep someone who in the earlier days of growing their portfolio, which are wanting to sort of leapfrog into the next property and then start spitting off some income for lifestyle. So it suits that early stage investor. If you're potentially more of a you know, lifestyle or retirement investor or even an intergenerational investor, whatever it might be, you're starting to look at assets that perform over the long term that you can sort of set and forget. Yep. A 
it's a different. It's, we're talking about a different thing here. It's, it might be a growth market on the outskirts of Sydney versus Mossman or eastern yep. suburbs, scarcity driven markets that outperform over the longer term. So, yeah, when you when you when you're drawing up, you're, you're pulling up that dial on the front end. You're giving it up on the back end yep. as well. So we're talking about twenty five percent growth up front, which that might bring it more back into line with with normal numbers and understanding. Yep. Yeah, I, I guess it's all clients result driven you know i i probably that's central to the mission as sort of touched upon is that it does start with the asset obviously it does need to be probably you know it does need to be a high performing asset but the way that we rate or assess customer success is are they able to drive towards their retirement or lifestyle dreams their goals you know what they're trying to do in property it's one point to have a you know, a very high-performing assets, but if they're not able to, you know, leverage that asset into the next and achieve those goals, then that's not, you know, they haven't achieved success in our minds. That's that's what we're really trying to drive towards. So, so the platforms. I mean, we're we're not going to be sourcing suburbs that are giving us twenty-five percent growth year on year over ten or fifteen years. But the the power is that you can purchase that property, get some growth, revalue, and and go again. Are we sacrificing long-term growth? Does it even out in the end, or is it possible that that the platform is looking for for those opportunities of 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 quick turnaround? You know, twelve months of growth, but are also in areas that are reasonable long-term investments or is it one and the other we can't eat our cake and have it too <laughs> you can to a certain degree right and, and that probably comes back to supporting within the community so the, the software sits there it's about maybe applying another layer of common sense over the top of it so if a market is recommended and it's a regional center it'd be more likely that it would be funding the growth at the lack of the back end it's it's a, a causal effect now that's maybe in the shorter term once you know, that cause creates that demand and that's now priced into that growth that's occurring in that market. It's potentially going to flatline and just go back to, to normal. You know, we might move into the layer in, in between that. So, you know, at the moment, I think there's 224 suburbs that are currently, suburban LGAs that are currently recommended as our prime top layer, if, if you will. And it's about going through that and looking. The regional might be strongly more biased towards the front end. A satellite city like your Morton Bays, your Sunshine Coast, Newcastle, your Geelongs, Hobart's probably classified as that would be your medium tier where it's potentially going to be stronger more towards the front end into the medium term, so three to five years. And then when you're looking at the suburbs that are, you know, scarcity driven markets, they might be just now cheap compared to neighbouring, but they're, you know, inner city, very well positioned, higher price points, potentially lower yields, maybe now coming into your, you know, your, your longer term growth. And, you know, we, we could throw this whole book out and we could, and the brain does have multiple strategies, by the way, but it's not the default in terms of your scarcity driven markets. And we have completely different signals that we look at in those markets to find a suburb that is going to outperform the, the city average by a certain percentage every year or close to every year for a longer period of time, up to 25 years. It's a completely different rule book, if you will. And you have to be adaptive in doing that, I suppose. What are the, some of the biggest takeaways that you've learned as an investor yourself and through the investors that are going through the, the platform? And is, is there any, are there any bits of conventional wisdom that the, the platform has, has told us to throw in the trash? <laughs> Maybe we could just quickly break this down. So a lot of the, the lessons I've learned about buyer behavior and the human part of property investing in terms of 
you know, people buy investments based on what they want to live in. The subjective, you know, subjectivity problem again. Yep. You know, it's not necessarily going to be a good investment. That's a big, big problem and, and no-no that we see. The other, the other, the issue that we do see in, as part of the community, it, it sort of keeps coming up again, is people trusting others that they shouldn't. Yep. Um, potentially, you know, someone of perceived confidence or professionalism. But just because I guess that they're a good accountant with, and good with numbers and looks to be successful from the outside in doing that, you have trust with them. You know, they're, they're giving you a great tax return or whatever it may be. It doesn't mean that they've got a first clue about finding an investment property or selecting an asset or researching an area. So that trust, which is what we do as humans, that's there. That's a major inherent limitation. And I guess, you know, probably without sounding too blunt here, but investors typically act from from my experience, on two emotions. It's ambition or greed, you know, yep. that's the blunt version. That's good. I'm happy with fear. blunt. Yeah, you know, greed or fear, right? So people are very quick to latch onto the media and sentiment that they see in that, the masses, to find the next hotspot or advice that they get from, you know, the, the, the trusting problem, as I mentioned before, the advice that they get, they're very quick to jump onto that because they let their ambition or fear take over and, and they just sort of take the leap and they go for it. So I still see that time and time again. So we're trying to break free of that mentality. Maybe, I, I guess, from that, the lessons that, that I, I have sort of seen work and will take away, if you want to be the best, you cannot be like the rest. You know, it sounds like a cliche, but this is investment. We're talking about a business here. We have to break free and... and operate a little bit differently. I guess community and abundance, that, that's how I sort of think. We're all in this together. We act like a black box. Potentially, we, we're not going to access the best support and, and nurturing each other. And maybe I might just sort of reiterate that property investment is a business and we have to treat it as such. My, you know, in preparation or, or thinking, you know, it, it, property is a business, but 60% of businesses, whatever the percentage, it's a large percentage of businesses fail very quickly in the first three years. Yep. I know on the property side that three quarters of investors own just one property, and for me, I see that as a failure. I don't. That's not enough to actually achieve what our mission at Ripe House is, that you don't just buy a good property, but you actually achieve your property and lifestyle retirement goals. It's not enough to achieve that. So I see something is broken. It's critically important for investors to act for success and remove that subjectivity, as we've obviously covered in some detail, to think and act like that 1%, to look across the country, going back through to cut through that noise and access that independent research, then to build a network of trusted professionals that can help them purchase anywhere and those professionals are aligned to their results. They subscribe to this independent research. So I guess if we, that's, that's treating it properly like a business. You know, if we do all of these things, it's treating it like a business. It's allowing us to break through the property barrier or I guess smash through it and yeah. actually achieve that second property to get us towards what we're trying to do in this whole game. I completely but, you know, agree with you. I mean, most investors are are getting that one property and yes, one is, is better than none and they might have some success, but, but is that property enough on its own to dramatically affect when you retire or the, the grand holiday yeah. plans that you have? P- possibly not. And almost certainly not to sort of have you retiring 10 years earlier than what you might plan. 
I would argue, Mike, that it's actually better to have none than that one property because if it was actually an effective investment, they would have been able to use that property to get into the second, okay? The most common way that investors find and source property is by an accountant or mortgage broker recommending it to them. Yep. That's, that's that, broken, you know. That, it's, that's it's good, actually Jacob. better for them not to invest in that property. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that, that, that Jacob says that one investment property is actually worse than none. That'll, that's, that's, <laughs> that's my clickbait sorted out, but we'll, we'll give you the, the right of reply in explaining what that is in the, in the interview. <laughs> Jacob, how do people get in touch Absolutely. with you if they, if they want to have a chat? Uh, obviously, if they're interested in sure. the, the platform, they can log on for the trial. Yeah, probably the best way to, to reach me personally would be at Ripe House, so R-I-P-E House on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to, yeah, it's a great way for us to connect and chat there. I'm also very active on our private user Facebook group where we have real, I guess, real case studies, investors for putting up what they're trying to do and we use that to help others. Use the, obviously the research and interpret it. It's private. It's obviously using the very timely research, et cetera, that I put on there first. You can get involved, as you mentioned, with Ripe House via a free trial on our homepage. Be welcomed straight into the community and, and use the research and analysis tools from that day one via www.ripehouse.com.au. I guess we'll touch on it. If you're a professional in the industry whom is investor results focused, acts with integrity along with those results and looks towards the future. You know, we're trying to do things here a little bit differently and really look towards generating these types of results into the future. If you do that, then reach out to our officers as would love to, I guess, have a chat and work out how we can assist each other to, to help. I guess ourselves, investors, we're all in this together is how I sort of phrase it. So Awesome. I think we might plan to, to have a webinar in the coming months to, to, to get some people a chance to, to interact with you a little bit, little bit more because this hour has gone Definitely. fairly quick, Jacob. So if we can wrap it, yes. wrap it up here with one piece of advice. This might be a tricky one oh. for you. <laughs> but yeah. If there's one piece of advice, <laughs> very what would tricky. it be? I guess the theme sort of looking back through the last hour would be to not settle for the status quo. You know, it's... I like to think of myself as a tech person, you know, that, that's how I, I really like embracing technology and, and, and I'm an analytical person, but I think things are, you know, really moving fast at the moment. It's scary sometimes when I look and go, wow, how things are changing. I would say potentially embrace this change, work together with others to do that and focus on what is important. And that is taking ownership for this business that we're in, taking ownership for that wealth journey to provide you know, a safe and secure future, potentially for our families, and to do that by really breaking free and, and in, you know, not settling, like, like the, the, you know, breaking that status quo. And in doing that, it's, we're doing that for this generation, by the way, and the next in our families. And I guess that's, that's the key takeaway. That's why we do this. That's good. That's powerful stuff, Jacob. I think that's fantastic. And thanks very much for, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. It's my pleasure. Hope it's been worthwhile for everyone on the line. So thank you very much. Cheers.